God searched through heaven and couldn't find one willing to be the supreme sacrifice that was needed that would buy eternal life for you and me. Had it not been for a place called Mount Calvary, had it not been for the old rugged cross, had it not been for a man called Jesus, then forever my soul would be lost. Well, I'm so glad he was willing to drink this bitter cup. Although he prayed, Father, let it pass from me. And I'm so glad he didn't call heaven's angels. From these hands pulled the nails that torment me. Had it not been for a place called Mount Calvary, had it not been for the old rugged cross, had it not been for a man called Jesus, then forever my soul would be lost. Had it not been for a place called Mount Calvary, had it not been for the old rugged cross, had it not been for a man called Jesus, then forever my soul would be lost. Then forever my soul would be lost. Well, that's exciting to know that Jesus Christ died on Calvary to pay for our sin. Amen? Isn't that good? Well, that's a blessing. Well, to this Saturday, or Sunday, we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do that every week, obviously. But uh, this week, of course, a little bit different. I wonder and hope that maybe you've been thinking about who you're going to invite and who you're going to try to get to come out with you Sunday. Be thinking about that, praying about that. And let's do our job to fill this place up so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can go forth and do its work in lives. Amen. All right, well, tonight, Brother Steve, why don't you come? Brother uh, Kavanaugh is going to preach for us tonight. I've asked him to do that. Brother Kavanaugh, you come on out and preach for us. <clears throat> got, I got tails hanging out. All right. Hope it's not a TP or anything back there. <clears throat> All right. Well, I am honored that Pastor asked me to preach tonight. Looking forward to the opportunity. I did forget to announce, if you're on the uh, black team for the spring program, uh, Dean uh, is your captain, and he wanted to meet with you after the service tonight. And so if you're on the black team, go ahead and meet in the uh, teen classroom, we'll call it. And uh, right after the service this evening, he wants to uh, get, get organized, all right? 
<clears throat> All right, well, if you would turn uh, in your Bibles this evening to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I love to preach. I love the opportunity that God has given me tonight. I'm thankful for the opportunity, not something I take lightly. I get to preach every week to the teenagers. I know I'm supposed to be teaching to them, but I get to preach to them every week. And, um, and so we have a good time with that. Um, but uh, tonight, grateful for this opportunity. Anytime you get to share something from God's Word, it's an exciting time. And uh, even if it's just going out sharing the gospel with somebody at a door, nothing really more exciting than that. Uh, that's the base of all things good right there, salvation. And uh, so that's always exciting. I'm going to share a little bit tonight of some things that the Lord has been working in my life, uh, just really through personal devotion, some different truths that He's been revealing to me, some things that really I think are exciting. And I trust by the end of the evening you'll think they're exciting too. And uh, if, if not, then I failed the Word of God because uh, it is an exciting truth, what you're going to hear tonight. And uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter number 9, in verse number 1, the Bible says, For as touching the ministering to the saints... It is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know that the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready, lest haply if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye have noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Now, we're all very familiar with that last verse there, for God, and that little phrase, for God loveth the cheerful giver. And uh, you, can, you can take your hand off of your wallet, because that's not what I'm talking about tonight. And uh, you can focus it back in on me, all right? And uh, the Word of God. Paul starts off this chapter really stating the opposite of what he is about to do. He starts off the chapter saying, this is superfluous of me. Say, so, this is really unnecessary. What I'm about to tell you, you don't need to hear. He said, I know your forwardness of mind. And what he's talking of is a trip that him and some Christians from Macedonia are going to make to Corinth. And when they arrive, they're going to need some things. And the church of Corinth in the past had always done a wonderful job of providing for Paul and the disciples when they came to, came to this particular church. And so Paul was saying, I know I really don't need to remind you of this, but we're coming again and... and um, and, and we're bringing, you know, the, the Christians from Macedonia with us. And I just want to make sure that you're ready for us. Now, he kind of goes about it a weird way, which totally threw me off guard when I first read this passage. Because he's saying, on one hand, I have no need to write this letter to you. I know your forwardness of mind. I know that you're going to be ready for us. But just in case, I've sent some, I've sent some of the believers before we get there to make things ready. Just in case you're not ready, I've sent some Christians that are going to, they're going to shore up the bounty. They're going to make sure that you have plenty for all of us that are coming. 
So on one hand, he's saying, I know you're going to do it. I have confidence in you, even to the point of, I've been boasting about you to all these other Christians all around the globe, and they ha- they're striving to be like you guys. They're, tr- they're, they're working to be prepared, and they're working to get their gifts together. And then he, and then he turns around and says, yeah, I- I've sent some Christians. And, it, and it, totally, it totally really just threw me off guard. What, what is Paul trying to accomplish here? He even makes a statement there. He says, I'm doing this that we're not ashamed of, that we are not ashamed. He said that we are not ashamed, speaking of himself. And he even made notes, particularly there, you'll see where he said that we're not ashamed. I'm sending these people so that we're not ashamed of our boasting. Not that you have anything to be ashamed of. I just don't want to be ashamed of my boasting, what I've been telling people. When I read that phrase, it started to come together for me. I believe that Paul was accounting for something here. Paul was accounting for the sin nature. And when Paul turned around and said, I know that you're the kind of people who are always prepared. I know that you've always had your things in order, that you've always had your gifts ready. I'm going to send some Christians. There's some Christians I've sent here to help you to make sure that you're ready. I believe that Paul was accounting for the sin nature. What do you mean he was accounting for the sin nature? I believe that Paul was in one way in the back of his mind. What if something's changed? What if the church at Corinth isn't the church at Corinth that I last saw? What if the last report that I got from Titus on his last trip to Corinth isn't the same thing that's going on now? Because that last report from Titus was a great report. And they had a great gift ready for Titus when he came. They received him well. But Paul, I believe, in the back of his mind was saying, you know what? I've been traveling around the world. I've been sharing the gospel of Christ with everybody, and I've been lifting up the church at Corinth saying, man, this church, they love the Lord. They are ready to give. They, have, they pull their things together and they give it. When the need arises, they are ready to give it. And he thinks to himself, you know what, I've been, I've been picking them up. I've been singing their praises. You know what, I better make sure that what I've been saying about them is still true. He's accounting for the sin nature. That something had crept in. And had it not, in many cases, in Paul's case, after he left the city, after he left the church, hadn't, in, in some of these cases, things changed? Yeah, they had had. If you're not aware, you, you, would, you could look through and you would see uh, how sin and, and pride had crept into different ministries that Paul had started and really destroyed them. And so you can, with that understanding, you could see where Paul is coming about this. Hey, I, I've been talking this thing up. I've been, I've been using the name of Christ, the testimony of God, and what he's done in those saints over there at Corinth. I want to make sure that I'm not going to drag his name through the mud when I bring these Christians from Macedonia. If sin is... Sin is an incredibly destructive thing. It is the most devastating out of any action that mankind can commit. After all, it is sin that caused the fall of man to begin with. Sin is the reason that we battle every single day in our flesh. A baby is not aborted. A child is not molested. A drunkard doesn't beat his wife. And a Christian doesn't skip church without sinning. And it is incredibly destructive, all, every single one of those things. I hate sin, and I believe that you do too. Billy Sunday hated sin. He said, listen, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. And I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. 
He hated sin, and we ought to hate sin because it causes destruction and it causes ruin. And I believe Paul had seen that far too many times. And when he spoke of the church of Corinth, he didn't want it to happen one more time. He didn't want the name of Christ to be drugged through the mud because of a a body of Christ that neglected God, neglected their walk with Him, and, and turned to their sinful ways. Sin hurts. And as much as we hate it, it's a part of our lives. Isn't it? It's a part of our lives. The greatest men in the Bible was a part of their lives. David knew the effects of sin as he watched his son die after an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Samson felt its debilitating effects as he played the part of an animal at the grinding mill. I have no doubt that Moses thought back to the times of disobedience as he watched the children of Israel go into the promised land. Greatest men in all of Scripture were affected by sin. And we as a church today, just as Paul was weary of the church of Corinth, can be affected by sin. We must understand this evening that we are all prone to sin. We can all fail. And before we go anywhere in this message tonight, before we get to where we're going... I want us all to acknowledge that in our own hearts and our own minds, how weak we truly are. Robert Robinson, a pastor in the 1800s, penned the words, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. The songwriter here so eloquently put that our hearts need to be tied down because when they are not, they begin to wander. Sin takes hold. And from the youngest in this room who may struggle with lying, cheating on a homework test or stealing a cookie from the cookie jar to the oldest in the room who looks upon a woman to lust, who skips our walk with God, our time with the Lord. Sin is a part of our lives. And we are all weak. We would do well this evening to keep this, as Paul was doing here, in the forefront of our minds. Matthew chapter 26, verse number 41. Just listen if you would. A verse we're all familiar with. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The words of who? Jesus Christ. As he stood at the precipice of the greatest battle he would ever face on this earth in the Garden of Eden. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And I want all of us in this room tonight, as sobering and as discouraging as it may seem, I want every single one of us tonight to acknowledge our weakness because of our sin nature. Our sin nature is crippling. Our sin nature holds us back. Our flesh, in it dwells no good thing. 
And before we go any further in this passage tonight, we see where Paul reminded the church of Corinth, and I really believe that's what he's doing. Hey, I have every confidence in you, but hey, we're prone to failure, and I'm sending some Christians to encourage you and to build up the bounty and to make sure that you're ready so that the name of Christ isn't drugged through the mud. And tonight we need to acknowledge this, that our flesh is weak. But on the heels of that, let me read the one verse in this section of scripture that I left out. And that's verse number eight. And this is where it gets exciting. Because he says, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. I think in this beginning part of this scripture, man, it can be discouraging. You look at it and Paul's saying, hey, you guys may just totally screw this thing up. You may not be ready and I may show up with, from, with some Christians from another part of the world expecting to show them an example of what a church should be. And when I show up, you've fallen into sin and you've messed the whole thing up and you're a horrible example of what the church should be. But, he's saying, but God is able. But God is able. And in your lives and in the church's life at this point, he was saying, hey, we are all capable of messing up. And we today are all capable of messing up. But God is able. But God is able. And this is the part of scripture that I want to focus on tonight. And I promise you, this will probably be one of the shortest messages that I've ever preached. Because I don't think there's a whole lot that we need to say here. I don't think a, a lot of extra words are going to do the trick. I don't think a lot of extra words are going to convince you of something that God can't convince you of anyway. Now, sometimes things need to be expounded upon in greater detail, but that phrase and those four words that God and God is able are pretty self-explanatory. And when we understand first and foremost in our lives that we are weak and that we are sinful and that we are nothing, and we have no sufficiency, and we have no strength, and without Him we can do nothing, and our spirit indeed is willing, but our flesh is weak, when we understand that, and then we look to a mighty God, and He says, but I am able. There is not much that needs to be said right there. Because He is able. And He's proved Himself over and over and over again. And the thing about this is, that God is going to be able whether we let Him be or not. God is going to be able whether we let Him be or not. What God wants from us, what God wants from us is to allow Him to exercise His ability in our lives. Don't miss it. He wants, to let, he wants us to let Him exercise His ability in our lives. Let Him work through me. That's what God wants from us. Tonight, my heart is enamored, and I'll tell you the truth, I am overwhelmed. And more than any other time I have stood in this pulpit tonight, I feel insufficient. And I have 100% confidence in the fact that it's because of this thought, because of the ability of God. And as I prepared and studied for this message, I understood how, how pathetically weak I am, how pathetically insufficient my knowledge or ability to present a thought is. It is all His strength, it is all His ability. The ability of God. Tonight I echo with Jeremiah when he said in chapter 32 verse 17 of the book of Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth. 
By thy great power and stretched out arm, there is nothing too hard for thee. The response of God to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord God of all flesh. There is nothing. Is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too hard for me? Sometimes we need a reminder, not just about our sin nature, although we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds. We need a reminder of the ability of God in our lives as believers, that He is able. Think about that immeasurable ability. Immeasurable ability. He is higher than the highest, greater than the great. No one will ever take his crown away. He is mighty, or he is higher than the highest. He's mightier than the mightiest. He reigns from above. He's the all-time undisputed, undefeated champion of love. When you think about that song, I can't help but start singing it and then messing it up and having to read the rest of it. But who who cares? It's good. I love that song. So I was meditating upon the ability of God this afternoon. A cassette tape that we had when I was a kid came to mind. It was an old black preacher who, as far as I'm concerned, has one of the greatest descriptions of God that you could ever read or hear. His name is S.M. Lockridge. I don't know if you've ever heard of S.M. Lockridge, but he's just one of those old black preachers. There's no other way to describe it. Full of thunder and passion and power and just a way with words that you... I can't even imagine putting something like this together. But let me read... Uh, just a portion, really, of what he said. He said, David said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define His limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of His shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder Him from pouring out His blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's, imper- he's imperially powerful. He's impartially, impartially merciful. Do you know Him? He's the greatest phenomenon that, that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's Son. He's a sinner's Savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of Himself. He's awesome. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call Him. He's the only one qualified to be the all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know Him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes. He saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and He guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives the sinners. He discharges the debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And He beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know Him. Well, my king is the king of kings. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring to wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway to righteousness. And he's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway to glory. Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. 
His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And His burden is light. I wish I could describe Him to you, but He's indescribable. Well, He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get Him out of your mind. And you can't get Him off of your hands. You can't live with... You can't live with them, and you can't live without them. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to, to agree, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king. That's my king. Man, that gets you pumped up. And just imagine if I was a black preacher, spitting all over this place, showering the front row. Really getting with it. It made an impression on my mind. Because he's an amazing God. And his ability, his ability is something that's indescribable. It is this ability that God offers to you and me at our complete disposal. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. And come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As I was thinking about the ability of God, I wandered over to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. If you would, just go ahead and look with me there. Ephesians chapter 20, or Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now unto Him, are you there? Say amen. amen. Now unto Him that is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus through all ages, world without end. Amen. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. When the ability of God is exercised in our lives, he imparts things to us. He imparts some things to us. And I'm going to give you three things. I believe me, they're going to be fast. Three things that the ability of God imparts to us. Three things that the ability of God imparts to us. The first is power in our lives. And it tells us right there in verse number 20, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20, it says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, comma, according to the power that worketh in us. The ability of God is the power that works through us. And when we allow Him to exercise His ability in our lives, what we are allowing is the power of God to work in and through us. Now, Christian, let me draw your attention to something that's very important tonight. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will see that with the apostles, the disciples were waiting for power to come from above. They tarried in Jerusalem. But... We picture the power of God as a, a tool that is used in spiritual warfare, and that is true. We picture the power of God as something we need to lead somebody to Christ, and that is true. We need His power in our lives. But the power of God is, is so much more than simply a tool for spiritual warfare. And specifically tonight, I want to make note that the power of God is the grace of God in our lives. The power of God is the grace of God in our lives, and it is this grace... That teaches godliness. 
Now, I could say the reason we're not seeing souls saved is because we don't have the power of God on our lives. And I'd be true in saying that. But because you haven't led somebody to Christ does not mean that you don't have the power of God on your lives. However, when you've got a stale and stagnant and fruitless and worthless relationship with God in your life, and there is no grace being demonstrated, and therefore no godliness being developed, and therefore no, no standard of separation, and no desire to be holy as He is holy, and no desire to be more like Christ in your everyday life, that is the power we are lacking today. The power of the grace of God working in our and through our lives, producing godliness in our lives. Godliness. That's the power we're missing today. And you can look around at many churches, and thank God there are people here that have godly walks, and I know them. But there are far too many Christians today who are godless in their Christianity. Godless in their Christianity. To think we can pump ourselves up and hype ourselves up and talk about the ability of God to work in us, the power that comes because of the ability, because that God is able. We can get all excited about it. We can sit in a service like this and be pumped up and fired up, but then choose willingly to ignore Him tomorrow and not let that ability work in our lives and ignore Him on Thursday or Friday and not let that ability work in our lives and ignore Him on Saturday and not let that ability work in our lives and we'll stir it up just enough for us to get into the church on Sunday morning. In some cases, we won't make it back for Sunday night. In some cases, we'll come on a Wednesday night like tonight um, and it's just barely the, the, the one time we'll drag ourselves in. But really, the only God... Godliness that you've got in your life is the, the little bit that can spore, spill over top of this pulpit into your life. But the, there is no personal power. There's no personal growth. Man, it's a changing process. This is a morphing process as, as a Christian. If I look the same as I did, God forbid it, if I look the same as I do right now in 10 years, I am utterly failing at the Christian life. And I can tell you right now in my own heart, phew, you go back two years, I don't look anything like that person. But I don't ever want to be satisfied with where I'm at. I want to be satisfied with what I've become. I want the Holy... You know, more than anything, I want to change because I want to know that I have God's power in my life. And if I don't have anything changing in my life, there is, it's dead sure that I don't have God's power in my life because God's power changes lives. It changes lives. And the ability of God exercised in our lives will change us. Will morph us into an image of His Son. We're too worried about the image that we... Uh, maintain with our co-workers we're too worried about the image we maintain with our neighbors we're too worried about the image we maintain even with fellow churchgoers and we could give a rip about the image we maintain with the holy of holies we could care less how we're quenching the power of god in our lives the ability of god in our lives we acknowledge at the beginning of this service every single one of us did the weakness and the fragility of our flesh but yet we opt for it so many more times, so much more often 
then we opt for the ability of God, that God is able. Secondly, this evening, I want you to notice that the effect of the ability of God in our lives not only is the power in our lives, but in verse number 21, it says in Ephesians 3.21, Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ. But God is able, and unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ. What brings glory to God in our church? I'll tell you what brings glory to God in our church. It's salvation. It's the unity of the body of Christ. We are the church, are we not? Those that are saved, the called out assembly of God, as the definition would go. We are. And what brings glory to God in the church is when a church is allowing God to work through them, thusly having the power of God upon their lives, thusly reaching their community with the gospel, working as a team, being united behind our pastor, being united in our our stance against the world, being united in our faith. That's what brings glory to God. I fear that too often God is not glorified in our church, in churches in general. And let me say why. Because I know on occasion I have stood before my class in my own strength and taught a lesson. That doesn't bring glory to God. I know on occasion that I have walked out going soul winning and knocking to knock on a door with something in my life that needed to be gotten right. Quenching the Holy Spirit of God in my life. I know that God is not always glorified as in the whole of this church simply because of the fact that sometimes I've got sin in my life and I'm part of this church. God says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power of God, to the glory of, church, to, to the glory of God through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ. We are to bring glory to God as a church. But we can't do that when we are striving to accomplish anything in our flesh. We can't do it when we think that we have something to bring before God. Far too often we feel as though we've got the talent. That we've got the ability. Let me serve or let me do this or I'm itching to do this or I'm itching to do that. That moment we feel as though I've got something to offer. That's an incredibly prideful thing to do. I'm not talking about that God has given you a gift and believe me, those gifts will be identified by the leadership that God has put in place over a church and it'll be assimilated into the, into the service part of the church. That's how God works it. When we go around thinking we've got, we're God's gift to the church, you think that's, is that where God's glorified? No, that's just pride. It's lifted up of oneself. Look at me. Look at I can do. Why can't I do this? I can do that. He's doing it. I can do it. And again, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about us not just getting plugged in and not being a part. We should be willing to do all those things and be a part of this church and be willing to serve wherever asked. I'm talking about how that when the ability of God is exercised in our lives, it brings glory to God because we realize that we are nothing and He is everything and that anything that I'm going to do as service to God in this church will bring glory to God because it's all of Him and none of me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29, He giveth power to the faint. 
To them that have no might, he increases strength. Psalm 119, 28. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according to the word. I could go on and on and on and on. But we've got to realize if we're going to bring glory to God in our church, we have got to be letting the ability of God work through us. Got to have the power of God. When we allow the ability of God to work in our lives, we let the power of God in our lives. We bring glory to God through the church. And then lastly, we leave a legacy to all generations. A legacy to all generations. You'll see there in those verses that it says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus through all ages. Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ through 2017, through 2020, through your lifespan, through the next six months. It's not what any of it is. It says, Unto Unto, the church, unto him be glory in the church by, Je- uh, by Christ Jesus through all ages. Now listen to me close. You say, well, that's tied in with the last phrase. Exactly. Exactly. In the Old Testament, they would go through some miraculous event. The children of Israel specifically Abram on, Abraham on several occasions, erected a monument. And when asked why the monument was erected, he said, so that when the children ask, they know why. They know that God brought us through. So that when the grandchildren ask, we can tell them, this is what God did for us here. When the great-grandchildren ask, we can point and say, this is what God did for us here. Now remember, we're talking about the effect of the abilities of God being exercised in our lives. And what happens when we allow that to take place is a legacy is left for all generations. Unto Him be glory in the church through Christ Jesus to all generations. And the thing is, when we allow the ability of God to work in our lives, we, just like the the Old Testament saints, will have things to point to. Say, look at what God did here. And look at what God did here. And look at what God did here. And my grandkids will ask, and say, Dad, what about that church? And what about all these people? And all the guys who have started ministries out of that church? And all the uh, missionaries that have been sent? And all the souls that have been saved? And what about all those buses? And I'll be able to say, this is what God did. And when we get into that building over there, I'll be able to say, look at what God did. And when we continue to grow, we'll be able to look and say, look at what God did. And we as a church, we can do that. But what about us individually? See, the thing and the problem today is we know a lot about our grandparents. My grandparent, my grandfather was a plumbing inspector. He was probably pretty corrupt, took bribes all the time. He was probably a very bad man. I don't know. But either way, that's what I know about my grandfather. As far as I know, he didn't get saved until the very end of his life. I know that he loved me. I know that he loved my dad. That's what I know about my grandfather. A lot of us probably know things like that about our grandparents. And unfortunately, for some of us, that's it. They know about your career. They know about the crazy things you did when you were a teenager. They know about your funny stories. They don't know about what God did in your life. Because the ability of God was never allowed to be exercised in your life. Now my dad, on the other hand, there's a little different story there. And I thank God for that legacy, for that monument that I look, can look back on for his salvation. 
and his change of direction from uh, a corrupt, bribe-taking father to a dad who wanted to serve in the ministry. And, and despite his failing, failings and despite multiple failures and despite messing up and doing all kinds of crazy things that you know, we would look at and frown upon, there's a legacy that will last. And I guarantee you it's going to outlast me. And by God's grace, it's going to outlast my children. By God's grace, in a couple generations from now, his great-great-great-great-grandkids will look back and say, look at what great-grandpa Kavanaugh did. Raised 11 kids for the Lord. Had multiple, five, four or five, I don't know, lost count myself of them serving in the ministry, being pastors and, and working in the ministry. Young ladies that married to men in the ministry. Desire to serve the Lord with their lives. See, there's, a, there's an awesome monument that's been erected, and for all generations it shows through because my dad at some point allowed the ability of God to work through him. A legacy to all generations. These type of stories are far and few between today. More and more, we don't see the legacies being left. I'm talking about the godly legacies. We're so self-absorbed, consumed with our own pleasures, that we forget that it's wood, hay, and stubble, and it'll be consumed. But what about the godly legacy? Because when it is the abilities of God that show through in our lives, we will leave a legacy to all generations. They will remember, they will remember unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus through all ages, world without end. Amen. The ability of God, it's a powerful thing if we'll allow it to be exercised in our lives. Go ahead and stand with me this evening if you would. Father, we are so thankful this evening. At least I know that my heart is rejoicing in the fact